Welcome to the Zenov podcast series on hyper-intelligent automation or HIA. HIA is a technology born from the confluence of AI and RPA, evolving from a conventional automation tool to a strategic enterprise game changer. In this series, we bring to you our conversations with leading automation gurus and industry mavericks on how they are defining new possibilities and business outcomes through automation. Welcome everyone to yet another exciting episode of the Zenoff podcast series on hyper-intelligent automation. Your ultimate destination to hear industry stalwarts share their experiences, predictions, and perspectives on automation. The world of automation is undergoing massive transformation with large-sized acquisitions and heavy investment bets being made globally. In the midst of this intensifying competition, enterprises face a Herculean task of unraveling the technological nuances and selecting the right technology to work with to ultimately achieve the desired outcomes. Today, I have here with me Eric Johnson, CEO of Nintex, who will help us answer some of the questions enterprises are struggling with. Eric has been at the helm of Nintex's journey towards leadership within the hyper-intelligent automation owing to its no-code workflow automation-centric capabilities. Eric, we are very excited to have you with us today, and I'm really looking forward to learning more about your views and your vision for Nintex. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Praveen. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Great. So before we get in, Eric, can you tell us a little bit about your company, Nintex? How long has the company been around? What's been the scale of operations? Who are your primary buyers? Just give us a little bit of background on, on the company itself to get started. Yeah, so Praveen, our company was founded in uh, 2006 out in Melbourne, Australia. And it was originally founded by a, a couple guys who had a systems consulting integration business. And they were often helping customers build portals and intranets. Customers say, hey, I've got this application I could use some help with. Can you build it? And they were having to custom code it back in the days. And so what they ended up doing was creating a workflow designer for themselves and, and then later on a forms designer so that they could quickly help build these applications. They could use a lower cost resource. They could deliver the project faster. They then quickly realized what they really had was actually a software company. And so they decided at that point, I think it was about 2006, 2007, to split it off, create its own company. And that was the early uh, beginnings of Nintex. And, you know, we've had a tremendous evolution since then. I think the best way to always start describing the company is to start with our mission statement, which is to improve the way people work through process management and automation. And as you just said, it's a gigantic market, right? And there's so many different components of it. There's multiple different platforms and, and capability sets. There's different user personas. And so it's important to understand what do we do and how is that different from what other people do? And so we focus very much on, I would say, the user persona of the ops professional. So think about somebody who might be in an IT collaboration team, an IT ops team, maybe a line of business ops team, that sales ops uh, analyst or a business analyst, process excellence professional, people with titles like that. We also have some professional developers who want to go faster and I'd say are more of a low code developer. Those are really the personas that we focus on. And we're helping people solve problems that I would say are anywhere from sophisticated to moderately complex. They're often at an organization level or maybe the full enterprise wide level. And our typical customer has several hundreds to a few thousand processes that they're managing and automating, leveraging one or more of our capabilities. And I think it's important to note that we've had this long 
time focus on this balance between ease of use and power, right? If you're going to help people solve sophisticated problems, but you want them to do it without having to use the professional developer, it needs to be easy enough to use, but it also needs to be fairly powerful. And that's really where we go. And, and in order to do that, you got to have a complete set of capabilities. So um, it's been a great journey. You know, I think when I started with the company seven years ago, we were about 40 million in sales. We're north of 240 million in sales today, 10,000 plus customers. Our NPS score is in excess of 75. I mean, we've got a phenomenal culture. So it starts with great people, great technology, treat people right, deliver on our commitments, don't wait, operate fast and do it the right way and great things happen. Amazing. From 40 million seven years ago when you joined to today, roughly about 250 million in a, in a short span of time seems really good, Eric. And congratulations to you and your entire organization for achieving such a feat. I think clearly it's a big market opportunity and it seems like your timing back in 2006 when you pivoted from custom software company to a proper enterprise software company and now to a, to a sort of an automation focus. I think uh, these bets uh, seem very timely uh, in the way you've evolved your company. I just want to get started by referencing one of the tech columnists who criticized the automation industry, the, the whole enterprise software automation uh, to be a form of automation that does not really create any economic value, right? It does not uh, create newer jobs, uh, unlike the physical uh, world automation where uh, factories gave rise to a lot of newer jobs to move the economy forward. How do you see the automation market in the context of economic value, jobs creation, and in general, value addition to the society through automation? Yeah, so Praveen, I've worked at seven different companies. I am by far the most proud of the work we do here and what we do to unlock value and how uh, much we help people. In fact, I was talking with one of our team members the other day, one of our customer success managers, and she literally, she kind of had almost tears in her eyes. And she said to me, you know, I'm so proud of the work we do because I feel like at the end of the day at Nintex, we end up helping nearly every person on earth somehow. And when you look at the diversity of our customers, and the applications that are used and how they touch um, all the way to the last mile. I don't know if it's every person on earth, but I would say there's a lot of people on earth that are getting benefited by Nintex. And I think it's important to look at why is that? What is it that an automation provider like us does that really helps people? And if you think about organizations, every organization, whether it's a for-profit enterprise or a nonprofit government, they have a customer, right? There's some group they're trying to help. And when you run your organization in a more automated fashion, and you, and not only do you run it in an automated fashion, but you think holistically about process and you improve and optimize process, that improves your ability to, to help a customer. And so we do a lot in the nonprofit space. And I would say that what are nonprofits trying to do? They're trying to maximize the amount of money and benefit they can give to whoever they're helping. And I'll, I'll give you an example. We help one organization in the UK that helps people who are in need of housing assistance. Well, by leveraging our technology, they've been able to help more people have home assistance and be able to get rent relief and things like that. So that's an example of automation directly helping people. And then when you think about unlocking innovation, right? I think it's a shame that in too many businesses, you've got smart, intelligent, well-educated people doing low value work. Why are they doing low value work? They're doing low value work because a lot of the process in that organization is poorly designed and it's unautomated. And so when you unlock and you automate work, then you allow people to spend time on, on higher value thinking. And so I would say, Praveen, I have no problem laying in bed at night thinking about the work we do here because it's, it is truly 
spectacular. And, 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 you know, to be clear, it's not just Nintex. There's other great companies out there in the industry doing great things. And so I think for every case where we're maybe eliminating certain roles in the short term, we're allowing organizations to redeploy those resources, train them and use them differently. And so I, I think the automation industry is doing outstanding things for the world. Awesome. Awesome. So talking about the industry itself, Eric, right? Picking on from your last comment, I think the space clearly is evolving uh, at a breakneck speed. A hyper-intelligent automation, as we define it at Zinov, uh, comes in different avatars of process mining, document digitization, process reimagination, RPA, and so on. And more recently, there's been a lot of buzz around this phenomena called low-code, no-code. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, when we talk to our customers, the one question they're asking us always is, when to choose APIs, when to think of RPA, when to think of low-code, no-code, right? Can you help unbundle this a little bit for our audience who are really on the fence today with respect to automation? How should they think of APIs and low-code, no-code and RPA? And in what uh, different context uh, do these technologies actually make sense? Yeah, so what I always encourage customers to do, and it's our philosophy overall as a company, is first and foremost, look at the process. And so understand where your process is at today. When you look at that process, then it allows you to reimagine and rethink it. And as you reimagine and rethink it and you want to improve it, that's when you start to leverage one or more technologies. And so I would recommend to to customers and organizations out there in the market to not start with, hey, I have some RPA, so therefore let me go look for problems I can solve with it. Start the other way around and think about what are your processes and then what are the technologies. And I'll give you an example is in many cases we have seen RPA used because there's, let's say, lots of manual forms that have been created. And then people are filling these things out. Now you need to get them inside into a legacy system. And so you've historically had human beings have to input these things into a legacy system. So one way to look at that would just be, well, I want to eliminate the manual data entry. Okay, so the quickest way to do that without really thinking it through would just be to apply RPA to it. But if you actually thought more holistically, why is someone creating a manual form. So step one, what we would say is actually, why not digitize the form and the data capture itself? And that's going to be a better customer experience. But then second, when you think about that legacy system, how hard would it really be to put some sort of an API on that front end? And in many cases, especially if you've got a technology like ours, or you can help the customer build APIs, leverage APIs very quickly, then what we often find it is worth the work to create the API. Once you create the API, you can use our SDK, and then you can build a nice little connector. And so now all of a sudden, you've gotten the automation you wanted, but you actually impacted the customer experience. You eliminated the manual work by the end customer. You eliminated the manual work internally. And in that case, what you really needed was you needed some forms capability, workflow, and a little bit of integration work. And that's a much better answer. Now, you may have other situations where for whatever reason, the time to do that or the best way to revise that process actually does mean you should still use some component of RPA. And so we actually have many customers, give an example, SBA PPP lending program. We have customers using every part of our platform for that, but there are components of that process where for many of these banks, the right answer, the quickest answer and what they needed was to use an RPA bot. And so they do. And so I think that's the critical reason why what we see is the industry is really converging. I think the players who tend to only have one component, they're in a tough spot because they're having to try to convince the customer that every problem is their thing is the answer for every problem. And realistically, that's just not true. And so we like to think of ourselves and as an honest broker. 
And we have all of these components so that the customer can use the right capability in the right place. And we think that's why the industry will continue to converge and consolidate. Yeah, just on your point on convergence, Eric, I think one of the school of thoughts we have had, and uh, some of it is also validated by customers, is the fact that this digital transformation-led modernization of technology on one hand, and then there mm -hmm. is RP and automation-led cost savings on the other hand, right? And today, obviously, companies are spending a lot on automation and RPA because uh, from a macroeconomic standpoint, the cost of borrowing to be able to invest in digital transformation is much higher than the cost takeout they can get by bringing automation. But is that how you see the world going forward? What happens when government provides uh, enough incentives to borrow money and uh, invest that in modernizing systems? In that case, what happens to this industry of automation, RPA, the whole nine yards and the whole conversion that we talked about? Is it going to still be relevant or uh, there, there's going to be some hybrid form of the two that companies will you know, go forward with? Well, I think automation itself is going to be extremely relevant. The specific subcomponent of RPA, I would expect long term, it, it becomes narrower. And it's exactly the reason that you talked about there, Praveen. These legacy systems, they will, over, and they are being, they will and they will continue to be modernized over time. And as those systems get modernized, some of the places that it was the most easiest to go create value leveraging RPA are going to go away. However, when you look holistically at what's needed with automation, even when those systems are modernized, and so maybe you don't have to leverage RPA to help create automation, you still will be leveraging other forms of automation to extend those systems and get to the last mile of work. And so when we look out 5, 10, 15 years, I'm extremely bullish on the opportunity in the industry but what I would tell you is I would not describe it as an RPA opportunity. Right. I would describe it as an automation and a process opportunity. And so it's a much broader way to think. And I actually think that's why, and I don't need to name names, but it's why if you look at any given month here, you're seeing a lot of the RPA providers make these acquisitions. Yes. And it's because they know if they continued to be RPA only, their long-term prognosis would not be so compelling. That's very interesting segmentation. So I think in the view that I talked about, which is digital transformation and automation on the uh, you know two extremes, I think what you're really saying is that there's a continuum and there's like modernization and digital transformation. There's a process which is through low code, no code and workflow automation. And then there's RPA, uh, which is for tactical legacy systems and unlocking value from that. I think this way of looking at things probably is uh, more relevant than choosing one over the other. In fact, that's where we get some other questions as well from our enterprise customers, which is to say that for one reason or the other, most of the enterprises have gone with, with a multi-platform dependence, right? They have digital transformation partners, they have process optimization partners, they have RPA partners, right? Uh, in fact, when we analyzed the largest of 250 companies, we realized that a significant portion of them actually work with multiple platforms. In your view of the world, how do you think of the future? Will it get consolidated to one platform? Will it be multiple platforms? How will enterprises really think about uh, this situation going forward? Yeah, so we have the benefit of talking with a, a ton of the world's largest enterprises. So when you think of the global 1000, over half of them are our customers. Fortune 500, over half of those are our customers. And so we have a really wide base. Plus, we do a ton in the middle market. So if you have at least a few hundred employees, then Nintex is relevant to you. Right. So with that in mind, we've got a wide range of data points to pull from. And what I would tell you is that the majority of large enterprises we see, the reality of it is they've had a whole bunch of purchasing decisions happen throughout their organization. Many of them have 10 to 20 platforms today. Now, do they need 10 to 20 platforms? Our answer would be no. 
And so we do think there will be a consolidation and we are seeing it. You know, there's more centralization in these organizations. I would say the more mature organizations have a process center of excellence or a digital transformation office. The names might be different, but think of a centralized organization that holistically is thinking about process and transformation. That organization not only is helping get visibility to the process, it's also looking for and, and making the decisions around which platforms are appropriate for what needs. Now, what we do believe, and it goes back to what I said at the beginning, there is a pendulum of complexity and there's a pendulum of kind of who is going to be doing the work. And so what we are seeing most organizations do is that let's start with the hardest part. So there's like maybe one tenth of 1% of the entire needs in an organization that are extremely complex and they are hyper mission critical. So think of an insurance firm claims processing. The claims app, probably the most important application they're going to have. That is going to be developed by professional developers. And so there's a set of players at the very, very high end of the automation and, and low code market who are really best fit for that. Now, let's think of the next thing. There's a whole bunch of applications that are needed, a whole bunch of processes that need to be automated in an organization that are sophisticated to moderately complex. They're high value. They may go across the entire company or an entire department. This though is where if you can, why not try to use a resource like an ops professional, a business analyst, a process excellence pro, someone with a title like that, who could quickly build one of these complex applications, powerful, easy to use and create a lot of value. So there's a set of those. Then you get to the place where there's all these tiny little workflows that relate to an individual person, maybe three to five steps, or maybe a small team. And so think of things that are very wizard driven, super lightweight, sold probably on an individual user basis. And so what we think is you need one of the really high things, let's call it your Appian, your Pega, that end of the market. You need one for that broad set of needs that's high value, that's the Nintex. And then you need one for the every average person, unlocking them, doing their own automation, for their own smaller efforts. That's your, your Power Automates, your Zapiers, and your Smartsheets. And then some organizations may add on a fourth or fifth because maybe they want to go deep in mobile or something like that. And there may be a platform that's a little bit stronger in that area. But I would say at heart, it's really three because there's three pretty distinct areas. And so what we're seeing in these large organizations is that center of excellence will help denote what those three are and help people understand when to use which of those three platforms. Interesting. So it's, what you're saying is basically, depending on the complexity of the use cases, the platform choices could vary. And uh, at least there'll be three platforms to deal with all kinds of complexities in a system. I think one of the related questions that come always from our customers is, you know, today, most of the automation decisions for one reason or the other, are not being taken centrally. In mm -hmm. some cases, IT is involved. In some cases, business is making decision. In some cases, uh, a completely remote centers, not really kind of integrated very strongly with the headquarters, but they are uh, like centers in India, centers in China. They are taking their own decisions in terms of how do they bring in automation into the way they do things. So in your view of the world, you mentioned that you work with many large global enterprises. What are some of the best practices you've observed in terms of setting the center of excellence, right? How do they deal with uh, these different decision-making personas by centers that are everywhere in the organization at this moment? So how do you deal with, with that organizational complexity, you know, with respect to automation? 
Yeah, so I would say that Praveen, that the organizations that are really leaders that are on the higher end of maturity, they have created that centralization. And what they do a really good job of is educating the different components of the business. And they do a great job of creating the champions. And so that, that by having these operational champions in the lines of business, in the various divisions, connected back to the center of excellence, they're able to provide greater awareness and greater consistency on what happens. And they ultimately end up not having the proliferation of multiple different platforms that really do the same thing. They end up having a lot more efficiency, not only on the pricing they're getting from the providers, but also just the efficiency of they can train everybody around the same thing. That's what we have seen um, work best. We, we even see things like in some of these organizations, you know, it's a little harder with the pandemic, but they'll have an automation conference. They'll have internal, like almost think of like a user conference. They act very much like we we act, but they do it for themselves. And sometimes we'll even ask them to help them. So I'd say on the higher end of maturity, it looks like that. Now on the opposite end, there's organizations where they don't have that center of excellence and everybody's off doing their own thing. And those are the places where you tend to see 15, 20 different technologies. They have no visibility into their processes. They don't know what's running where. They don't know what's connected. And so imagine the scenario when you have a core business system, like an SAP system, Maybe you've connected a bunch of different additional automation platforms to it. Now you make a change to it. What's going to happen? Right. You have no idea. But if you're leveraging great center of excellence, you're leveraging technologies like ours, particularly our, our ProMap capability, when you go to change SAP, you know exactly what's connected to it. You know exactly what you need to change. And you can really think through all those downstream impacts. So I think there's a lot of value in this whole um, process of excellence line of business cooperation approach. Makes sense. I think, you know, like we discussed, there are a lot of organizations who have got into this mess. They have got these 15, 20 different platforms. They had almost a independent decision-making spread across everywhere. What is your recommendation and advice to those kind of companies, right? How should they start deriving value from their automation initiatives from this point? There's a couple of things. Um, one, think about the process first. Abstract yourself one layer above and think about the set of business problems and, and challenges and opportunities you're trying to solve for. We really advise clients to think about process governance, process excellence, where often a great first step is to start out with that process center of excellence. So set up your first COE. And step one of that is really to capture what are these processes across the organization where are they being automated? Get a view into your actual landscape. Then what we encourage folks to do is to think holistically about, given what you now know about your processes, what really are the needs? Then you can look towards centrally selecting what are going to be your core standard platforms. If you're in the 15 to 20 club, you're not going to go straight down to three overnight, right? There, that's a lot of work. So what you're going to be doing is really trying to first offset as we go forward, Let's make sure that people are using our the best technology for the best situation that we you know centralized and recommended, and then you start to think about how can we transition some of this work to one of those systems that that we want to rely on, and over time you can whittle down those number of providers. And I think it is a bit of a journey, and they're not going to get there overnight, Praveen. But I think with some good intention over a period of years, the organization could be in a dramatically better position. So let's talk a little bit about process discovery, Eric. I think uh, you, you gave a lot of emphasis on that to declutter the organizational mess and things like those. I believe you made an acquisition around process discovery in ProMap. And we also see that a lot of companies, enterprises, they still continue to rely on manual techniques or tribal knowledge around automation. They're not really digitizing the process discovery 
uh, component at this point. What has been your observation around ChromeApp and what was the thesis behind uh, making that acquisition in the first place, Eric? Yeah, so holistically for us, at the end of the day, if you start with what matters most, is it's the outcome. And what's the outcome? It's around a process. And so our view, when we, we were working together back probably about 2018 timeframe, and we had started this season of our life, which we like to call an Intex 3.0. We had a new investor come in. We were thinking about where the market was going, what the opportunities were. Our view was if we could go a step higher and help our customers first think about the process, then it would ultimately create a lot more opportunity for automation and we'd be able to help them in a better way. And so um, that was really where that started. And, and what we've seen over time now is that more and more organizations are seeing the value of that. So instead of just running and automating something without actually thinking about what the process really is and reimagining and what's possible, we're seeing more organizations now go a little slow to go fast. And that means taking a look at the process. So this whole notion of process discovery, which I'd say is a broad category, and there's a lot in there. The, the part that probably gets a lot of attention right now and get, gets a lot of write-ups on it is the whole zone of process mining or task mining. And I would say that in a lot of respects is possibly a little overhyped. This notion of auto discovery is, is important. You can start out and get a notion of where you're at and get some data on it. it makes the process of mapping out a process a little bit quicker. But then really the, the real value we find comes in when you're looking at that process and the people who know the process, they get the chance to look at it and then holistically think of the possible. See, process discovery or task mining, that doesn't tell you what it could and should look like. It just tells you where you're at right this minute. And so then what we try to work with our customers on and, and where they get a lot of value from ProMap is as they're looking at it and they're collaborating on it, they start to reimagine what it could be. And some of that is just process design and, and doesn't even involve automation. And some of it involves automation. And then we allow them literally using a little bit of AI and NLP, they can click a button and go straight into the automation design experience and start it much faster. So we can take out 50 to 60% of the design work on the automation side out by all the work we've done on the front end. Okay. As a company, like you mentioned, Eric, you started with Australia and historically you've made acquisition through which you've gotten footprint in Asia, you've gotten footprint in Africa. What are the geographical trends you are noticing in automation? How is a North American market different from an African market, which is different probably from an Asian market? Are there any nuances that you've picked up while operating in these markets? Yeah, I would say first thing I would call out is focus on the cloud. I would say in the North American market, definitely cloud first. We, we see organizations 100% absolutely prefer to go to the cloud. And even when I think about government and some of these more highly regulated industries, we're even seeing them now want to do automation cloud first. I think when you get to other parts of the world, that would be the first difference I would see. There are some places where the focus on maybe on-premise or private cloud or, or hybrid, whatever you want to call it, is probably a little higher. So when we're like in the Middle East, for example, we have a phenomenal business out there. We're doing really, really well. But I would say a lot more of the customers that are very concerned about information, data, not leaving their country, maybe even their own company. And so a little bit of a difference in what they value on that. I'd say you also get into some differences around what types of automation, which processes they want to look at. So there are certainly differences. And one of the things about us that's interesting, Praveen, we have a, our global headcount. So we have a little over 800 team members. Our team members, we have about a third in the Americas, mostly in the US. We have about a third in Europe. 
and we have about a third in Asia Pacific. So we're super globally diverse. So even internally, when it comes down to cultures and, and different ways to look at things, there are certainly differences. For example, the business we have in Germany is exceptionally strong. And it is definitely a mix of both cloud and hybrid, but very, very, very thoughtful on process design and oftentimes going after some of the harder and more complex processes. So you definitely see a variety, but I would say globally, tons and tons of opportunity and automation. All of these organizations realize that they, they need to do it in terms of customer experience and overall competitiveness. Interesting. So when you look at these uh, different markets, are you thinking of building the Nintex uh, technology stack differently for these markets because the needs are very different or you are taking the same platform, but just trying to sell the component, which is most relevant to the customers at that point in time. How are you thinking of the technology uh, evolution in keeping with the needs of the different geographic clusters you have at this moment? Yeah, so I would say the core capabilities themselves are functionally the same. What we do think about, though, is the markets we're going to focus on, sometimes there are localization um, needs. So not every market wants to work with an, with an English-based product. Right. And so we do localize and sort of have a prioritized list of how we localize, but we, we certainly do things like have the, the German language support and a few of the other uh, most popular languages for large markets. We also think about like our data center footprint. We leverage uh, primarily Azure. And so Azure obviously has a number of data centers across the globe. And so as we go into markets, we will often bring our capabilities into the Azure data centers that's relevant to that part of the world because we know that a lot of our customers, rightly so, they're very concerned about you know data residency, data sovereignty, and issues of that nature. So I'd say that there's a little bit, so the core capability at heart is going to be the same, but then we're going to do some localization and some amount of localized data center support to, to answer customer needs. Now, I will say what the mix of products that are sold by each of our teams in the market can vary. And so we may have certain markets where we're having more success with a certain type of buyer and problem set than other markets. Um, for example, we do exceptionally well in the U.S. around banking. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. In other markets, we might be stronger in, in government, for example. So do, do well uh, across the board. Perfect. In Zenov's assessment, uh, Eric, we believe that Nintex is already one of the top three automation platforms and you've come a long way. You've had profitable business for a long period of time, etc. The past has been really glorious for you, right? And where you stand today seems like you're in a very strong position. Talk to us about how the next 12 months are going to look like for Nintex. Yeah, we're going to continue to evolve super fast. We are not resting here. You know, we have three core tenants in the business and they, they guide us each and every day. Number one is deliver on our commitments. Number two is don't wait. Three is operate with respect and consideration. And when I look at the set of things we have to go work on over the next 12 months, we know what we're doing. We've got the teams across the board going flat out. We're hiring a ton. So we're going to continue to innovate. We're going to continue to push hard on product capabilities that help our customers. And I have to tell you, I, mean, I can never predict which ones. But we are really active on the acquisition front. There are a, a number of companies that we are interested in. We're actively having discussions almost every single day. And I would expect that when we get to March 2022, we're going to be bigger. We're going to offer our customers more value. We're going to be able to solve more use cases. We're going to have more team members to help our customers and partners. Our partner network is going to continue to grow and be even larger. We're going to have more capabilities. And we're going to have done at least another acquisition or two. I can't wait to show up at March 2022. It's going to be a lot of fun.
Awesome. We've always enjoyed working with you and your team, Eric. And today hearing about Nintex and the vision around automation technologies that are forming an integral part of the digital transformation programs of several of your customers and enterprises in general. I think it talks a lot about the significance of automation, uh, which has obviously evolved in the last few years and how it is going to continue to evolve over the next uh, several years. And we are confident that uh, with leaders like you, with companies like you, the future of automation is actually in safe hands. And we will have more and more progressive enterprises. We'll have more flexible platforms. And more importantly, uh, it feels like we are on a path where we'll have a very well-informed community as a whole to be able to derive benefits and get outcomes out of the automation initiatives that they are going to make, right? So I really appreciate, Eric, you taking out time today and, and joining us on this podcast. It was a pleasure to host you and uh, hear some stories around the industry and, and the company. I wish you all the best and I'm uh, eagerly looking forward to what you know Nintex can do over the next 12 months and, and the period after that. And I I wish you and the entire team the very best. And thank you once again uh, for being on the show today. Well, thank you, Praveen. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. You know, you're, you guys have such a great set of thoughts on the market. Whenever your research comes out, we always read it as a team. We're always learning from it. And we really appreciate the opportunity to, to be part of your zones, the opportunity to participate in podcasts like this. So thank you for what you're doing for the industry and the market. It really means a lot to all of us. Appreciate it. Sure. Thank, thanks so much, uh, Eric. And with that, uh, we come to the end of this episode. Uh, thank you all for tuning in and watch out for more such engaging discussion in this Synoff podcast series. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hyper Intelligent Automation Series. Stay tuned for more such interesting episodes. You can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To get more insights on how you can make your automation strategy count, connect with us at info@zinov.com or visit our website www.zinov.com. Follow us on LinkedIn at Zinov for regular updates on our content. Thank you again for listening to the Zinov podcast. Music